As Pastor Jared comes and takes the stage, go ahead and give it up for Pastor Jared as he shares the word with us today. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you? I like that answer. It's good to be here. One of my favorite places to be with some of my favorite people doing one of my favorite things. Um, love to pour into Bible college students, those training for the ministry. And uh, God has uh, been burdening my heart lately, so it's a good time to, to be up here and to share the word with you all. If you could turn in your uh, Bible to Jude. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Really, there's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude verse 3. And I want to talk about one of the most destructive heresies facing the church today. Before I identify the heresy, I do want to back up with what the Bible promised would be a fight for us and the body of Christ. Uh, many times the church, the, the saints around the world, is called the church militant. Y'all ever heard of that, uh, that term? The church militant, which would mean that the church is always fighting, always striving with enemies, with spiritual forces in heavenly realms. And then, of course, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but who ends up opposing us? It's, it's people, human beings under the influence of basically demons, and you will see that the church will always have to contend with the foes that are outside, right? And that could be state-sponsored persecution, like in North Korea, where Christianity is outlawed. Many places in the world today, there is state-sponsored persecution of Christians, where you cannot be a Christian, where you cannot practice your faith, and if they find you out, they're going to do very bad things to you. They'll throw you in prison. They'll torture you. They'll kill you. They'll kill your family. Nothing's off the table in many places in the world as far as what people are willing to do to Christians. And then, of course, outside of that or just short of that, it's any individual or group or community. It may or may not be state-sponsored, but anyone who comes against the church, speaks against the church, it may be through physical uh, threats and violence and intimidation, or it may be ideas outside, like, like atheists who write books critiquing Christianity, who get on TV shows to tell everyone Christianity is stupid. That would be outside of the church, right? That would not be uh, uh, necessarily something that's within our ranks, but people who are clearly outside of that, right? But there are also enemies on the inside. The Bible makes this very clear, and what they are is false teachers and false prophets who introduce what, the, what Scripture says are destructive heresies that divide the body of Christ and, and it is all an attempt to destroy the church and, and, and pervert the gospel so that instead of the gospel saving people, it's a false gospel damning people. And we need to be aware of that. This fight has been going on for as long as the church has been around. Let me, let's read from Jude 
Um, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Sovereign. And so Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, within decades of the life of Jesus here on earth, is already having to contend with individuals who are slipping in and perverting the grace of God. And Paul dealt with them, John dealt with them. This has been going on from the beginning. And so for that reason, he felt it was necessary to urge them to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. In other words, there was a faith that came, uh, I believe, with Jesus. Jesus gave the full disclosure of the nature and the character of God, right? He said, from now on, if anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. In Hebrews, it says that in past times and in various ways, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is his image and the very representation of his being, and so there is, there, up until Jesus, you could say there was progressive revelation. They didn't know about the Trinity until after Jesus, right? Among other things that were, that were not clear. God was progressively unveiling these things to humanity. But Jesus brings the full disclosure, and then through the apostles, they write out what are the outworkings of this? What does it look like? Jesus has come. The Son of God has come in the flesh. He has died for sins. He has raised from the dead. What does this mean for us now? And so this was all put in Scripture in the first century. And so contrary to what some people will say, uh, Christianity did not evolve over time. It was not invented. It didn't come as a result of councils and things like that. You understand? Now, granted, councils had to uh, discuss these things and, and, and wrestle with these things and deal with uh, heresies that went against this once-for-all faith, but it was there from the first century. Nothing changed since that time. And so we're urged to contend. Uh, let's look also at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter has a very similar uh, concern to Jude here in this text. He said, but there are also false prophets among the people. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will all be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Let's just take a few key terms and, and, and ideas that each of these texts present. The first is uh, the idea of contending for the faith. In the Greek, the word that Jude uses is Epagenizomai, epagenizomai. I think I'm saying that right. That's a mouthful. If you, if you read it and you say it slow enough, 
you can see the syllables agonize, agonize. And so the word he's using for contend, I'm not even going to try to say that anymore. The word he's using for contend is where we get the English word for agonize. So to contend is to strenuously, agonizingly fight and wrestle against falsehood for the sake of truth. This would be the struggle of the ages for the church to continually fight in this manner because it's like the whack-a-mole game. There's always heresies popping up their head. There's always false teachers, and a lot of the new ideas are really just old heresies. It's just, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, and the church is going to continually having to, to contend with these things because there's never going to be a day until Christ returns that they all go away. There's always going to be people who, profla- who, who proclaim doctrines of demons and attempt to subvert the gospel and destroy the church with heresies. And so we must contend with those people. We cannot uh, just be um, willy-nilly and, and have kids' gloves with those people, okay? We need to confront them. We need to deal with them and deal with these teachings. Amen? And, and, and sometimes when you do that, people accuse you of being mean and divisive, but they're the ones being divisive. They're the ones who are being mean in the sense that they're telling you lies. No one who loves you tells you lies, no matter how nice they sound. And so they're telling you lies about Jesus. You have to deal with them. The second thing is, is that word heresy, and a heresy can refer to a schism or a sect. In, in other words, it can, it, it can divide people. Like, let's take this room, for example. We can divide people according to skin color, for example, or we can divide people according to their likes and hobbies. And, and not only would we divide people, but we would have them just vehemently against each other. Like, there could be, like, the video game group and the anti-video game group. And, you know, I'm just to throw out something silly there, um, but there could be just such a sharp... Um, Uh, debate over it. Now, granted, granted, we should divide over truth. How many think it's a good thing that we're not calling the Mormon and the Jehovah Witness our brother and, and, and basically saying, okay, but one of the things that the heretic will do is they will form a dividing line and say, you have to believe our heresy. You have to believe our heresy. And that's where we get from kind of a gray area what the Bible calls ediophora, where Christians can sometimes agree to disagree, and we could still be brothers and sisters. There are many uh, doctrines like that. For example, not everyone believes in spiritual gifts the way we do, okay? Now, where they would become heretical is if they were to say, we are not brothers and sisters, right? Or vice versa, because of our disagreement on this area. And there are some fundamentalist groups that do that. They have such a a narrow set of beliefs that determine if you're a Christian or not. And if you disagree on anything, they go after you. And that's very heretical. And again, Peter says these are destructive. They destroy the church. And the last thing I want you to note from these texts is he both mentions secretly. They secretly slip in. They secretly introduce these things. Again, it's not the atheist. It's not the Muslim. It's not even the Mormon. You know, when Mormonism started, uh, when, when, when uh, Joseph Smith supposedly had his visions, um, God, so-called, so um, said to him, all the churches were wrong. And all the churches were uh, 
uh, abominable and all their creeds detestable. You know, Joe Smith, tell us how you really feel, like he was keeping it real, at least to what he felt about us. Uh, but nowadays, Mormons are going to try to really flatten things out and try to sound like us and try to use the same uh, vernacular as much as possible so that we seem the same. But even then, when a Mormon approaches you on a bicycle, you kind of know you're dealing with someone who's not of the church. But these are people who are in the church, and they've been in the church, okay? And they, they, again, they can, like the Mormon, try to say a lot of the same things, but they don't mean the same things by what they say. And some of them could have really a track record of, of integrity and a track record of teaching correct doctrine, but then fall away. As First John says, there were people who went away from us, and, and it proves that they were never of us. And there were, there's going to be folks in your midst that today they could be saying, Jesus is Lord, uh, but then tomorrow be calling those things into question and saying really funny, weird things. And, and, and on their way out, on their way out of the church, they're going to try to take as many people with them. They're going to try to sow as much discord and confusion as they possibly can while still professing to be Christians, while still holding on to whatever title they had of bishop or, 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 or professor or whatever they were, they're going to try to take as many people as possibly can until they're found out and exposed. And so they're wolves in sheep's clothing, just like Jesus said. And so with that in mind, and there are many texts that deal with false teachers, false prophets in the New Testament, uh, but, but I want to focus on what I think is perhaps the most destructive heresy the church must contend with today. And I put this out there on Facebook and got a lot of answers. I said, I'm going to address the most destructive heresy in the church today. Got a lot of great answers, and it had me thinking of rewriting my message, but I, I stuck to my guns. They said a lot of good things, but I stuck to my guns. And I'm gonna, my answer is this. It is critical theory. How many have heard of that? It's, it's, it's sort of a novel thing that we're having to deal with, it. critical theory. Let me give you a, a, a buzzword uh, that, that is associated with critical theory, something you may have heard, social justice, being woke, wokeness, okay? These, this, this way of thinking, and I'm going to unpack it in just a moment, but this way of thinking is incompatible with Christianity, Okay? And, and what's happening here is a form of syncretism. A lot of heresies involve syncretism where you try to combine Christianity with something that does not comport. So, for example, in the early church, uh, they were dealing with Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an attempt to take Christianity and combine it with Greek philosophy and, and dualism and things like that concerning the physical and the spiritual, etc. I won't get in the weeds on that, but that's what they would do. In Africa today, many churches deal with syncretism in the fact that there are still many Christians and even, and even leaders who are saying things out of their animist uh, traditions of their old religions, right? And so a lot of that, that's syncretism, right? You try to combine Christianity with something else. You combine the truth with a lie. You combine God with the devil. How many know that doesn't work? 
And so what's happening here with critical theory is trying to combine the teachings of Jesus and of Scripture with those of Karl Marx, okay? I'm going to give you a crash course here. This is still a sermon, so I'm not going to get in, in the weeds in, in, in great detail here, but I can refer you to some, to some sources that I was looking at in preparation. But I want to talk about this man, Karl Marx, for a moment. He lived from 1818 to 1833, he lived in Germany. He was the son of a preacher, but he became an embittered God-hater, and he grew to hate capitalism as well. It's funny how those two uh, sort of coalesce. He hated God, and he hated capitalism, okay? And it wasn't just that he was an atheist. He was an anti-theist. He hated God. He wanted to remove every vestige of God from this world. And so... Out of his anti-God worldview, he developed this understanding of history, that history is always moving in different stages. He saw the ancient stage of the world, referring to the ancient world, the feudal stage, referring to the Middle Ages, and then the capitalist stage, which he was living in and we are still living in today. And so he, so he saw that each of these systems had things wrong with them, flaws and contradictions, and that they would inevitably lead to a class struggle, class warfare. It would lead to revolt and uprising, and then a new, that system would die. It would burn. It wouldn't just die, uh, you know, it wouldn't go quietly. It would burn. And then a new system would come out of that. And he hated capitalism, and he hated religion, and he saw that they were sort of bedfellows, that religion kind of kept people enslaved to the capitalist mindset. And so his idea was that this, the society, the way that it's ordered now, must, must, must be uh, toppled, taken down, in order for his socialist vision for the world to come to fruition. And so he died, 1883, and... Um, it's, it's very important to note that his ideas were implemented by luminaries such as Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and F Fidel Castro, to name a few. Isn't it interesting? That's, that should be a red flag right there. Bad fruit. Over 100 million people murdered under Marxist regimes to this day. Everywhere his teaching has taken root, it has been nothing but oppression and misery and death. It's bad fruit from a bad root. You have a man who hates and rejects God and comes up with this confounded worldview that doesn't work. And when people try to establish his worldview in government and society, this is what happens. We shouldn't be surprised. You know, I'm old enough to remember when communism wasn't cool. But now we got people feeling the burn, and they're ready to give it another try. God help us. But that's not just in the culture, it's in the church. More on that in a moment. So what ends up happening is that some of Marx's disciples in Frankfurt, Germany, it was a group of people, they were called the Frankfurt School, they became sort of frustrated that Marx's prediction, his prophecy of a capitalist, of an uprising against the capitalist age, 
didn't happen. It wasn't happening the way they thought it would. And so what they did was begin to sow the seeds for it in academia. They, they tried to introduce their ideas in many uh, schools around the world, uh, but where they ended up taking root was in Columbia University in New York City. So America and New York, the great city of our nation, has accepted their uh, views as early, in the early 20th century. So understand that what we're seeing today in our culture and in the church, the seeds have been sown for it a long time ago. It was introduced through academia, through higher education, college, right? And so the nation's leaders, the best and brightest of our culture, those going out to be journalists, those going out to be politicians, those going out to be educators, are now being instilled with what the Frankfurt School taught. And what did they teach? They teach that people are divided into subgroups according to points of intersectionality. So, uh, in other words, it's about either how oppressed you are or how privileged you are. And we could just assess you. TJ, he's black. That's an oppression point, right? He's male. That's a privilege point. You know, he's a Christian. That's a privilege point. And, by, and, and so you could actually see just from that example alone, it's not just innate characteristics like you're a woman and women don't make as much money or you're black and black people get into more trouble or what have you. Even ideas become either more oppressed or more privileged to the point where to today, even the scientific method is being called a tool of white supremacy. Objective truth and reasoning is being a, a, a tool of white supremacy because, you know, a lot of Western you know, Anglo nations have employed these things, right? And so, it, it, but it divides. And that's what critical theory does. It doesn't unite, it doesn't build, it destroys and divides. And divides us to now where we're creating hostility and tension. So where Malia should be, be mad at Marco to some extent. And, and see herself almost as in competition with Marco. Because she's an oppressed woman and he's a privileged man. And again, it divides us, race and gender. Uh, and you know for folks today, gender means a lot of things, right? Cisgender versus being all the other genders the Democrats made up. Um, and, and again, these are all privilege points, points of intersectionality. And so that, again, spans from innate characteristics such as gender and skin color to ideas, customs, and norms, including the Christian religion, the English language, Family structures, the nuclear family, which BLM, Black Lives Matter, wants to uh, destroy and uproot because it's seen as a, as, a, as a vestige of white supremacy. So the end goal then is to topple what they call the cultural hegemony. The cultural hegemony is basically in this culture today, who has been the most privileged? Who's been on top? And in their assessment, white, male, cisgendered, Christian. Okay, now that can be different from place to place, but whoever's on top, they need to be on the bottom. That's the big idea there. And they want to redistribute wealth and power to go to oppressed people. Okay, that's their big idea. That's, that's what they want. That's their salvation. That's their heaven. That's their utopia. That is what they want. And so um, a few other things worth pointing out is that the Frankfurt School sought out robes, that's what they called them, people in society who at least at the time wore robes um, and had a, a authority and a voice in the culture, people such as judges, educators, politicians, and clergy. 
Now catch that last one, and clergy. These people, if a pastor were to profess critical theory, he would be a useful idiot to their cause. That's, that's not just a pejorative, by the way. That would be the term that they used. You're an idiot, you believe Christianity, you believe all these things, but if I can get you to corrupt the church and, and to start buying into some of the things we're selling, then I can use you. You get it? That's a useful idiot. Another thing is that they are post, essentially postmodern. Postmodernism is, is the idea that truth is, there's no objective truth. It's all moral relativism. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And, and, so, with, and, and so with that then, uh, in, in place of objective truth, they have what's called standpoint epistemology. This is where you hear people say, shut up and listen to oppressed voices. Educate yourself. Listen to all these other people. So it doesn't matter if, you're, if you are just trying to tell people what the Bible says. It doesn't matter. Their truth is truer than yours, okay? They could be saying that the sky is purple and two plus two is five and, and all these things. They could be saying that, but their oppression points, their intersectionality points make their truth truer than yours. They are postmodern. And, so and so on that note, it would be very disappointing to see Christian apologists who have been contending with postmodernist thought, because there have been many who've kind of helped us walk through these issues. We've been dealing with that for a while now. It would be sad to see them get woke and accept this um, essentially postmodern view of things. But let's fast forward till today. It's been sort of a trickle-down effect because not everyone's heard of Karl Marx or the Frankfurt School or, or any of those things, but they're using their language in their categories, Right? It's trickled down from academics to politics and culture. And now everyday people are using the rhetoric of critical theory. Uh, here, here are some examples. Race events, such as the death of George Floyd, form a narrative of systemic oppression that pervades virtually everything in American culture. Right? How many are just hearing left, right, and center that America is and always has been and always will be white supremacist, built on slavery and oppression. And so every race event, that, and it doesn't matter what the facts are of the matter, but any race event that they could use to bolster that narrative, they're going to use, and the emotion of it. Because if you saw, by the way, the George Floyd video, it can make you very emotional, and rightfully so, but then you circumvent reason, you don't listen to facts, there's a lot of things that came out in the months to come, and we still burned down Minneapolis and defunded the police force over it because of emotion, we're riding a wave of emotion that allows us to buy into what is actually a false narrative. And so, and so that's happening, right? Then you have sports, entertainers, and corporate America bending over backwards to show that they are with the zeitgeist, and that means the spirit of the age. They're bending over backwards to show people, we're with it. End racism. Racism bad. Wow, you are, you are so brave declaring racism is bad in the 21st century in the United States. Come on. We knew that. We knew that. But, but they're going the extra way to virtue signal and then to, to get training 
um, um, did you see that woman who was hired to, t- she was a black woman, she was hired to talk to a bunch of white people and tell them they're the devil and they're racist and they're not human? I mean, they're hiring people like this to do sensitivity training. They're making up fake diversity and inclusion departments and giving people six-figure incomes to be diversity and inclusion officers, which is just a, a distraction. <laughs> You get paid six figures to distract people from work and get people all riled up over nonsense. And so we're all bending over backwards to to see this in our culture. Then we're seeing groups like Black Lives Matter, SUM. We're seeing groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa that are unashamedly Marxist, and they are working to destroy capitalism, to rewrite history. Now, you may not like history, but you need to learn from it. You need, to, you need to take it for what it is, not what you wish it was. But that's where all the statues are coming down. That's where everything that we don't like that doesn't suit their narrative has to be destroyed or changed. They are paralyzing the law, which is why Chicago has so much more crime and violence this year than last year. I was just looking at some stats, how even in a year where everyone's supposed to stay inside in COVID, there are exponentially more violent crimes and shootings and murders in our city this year than even last year because the law has been paralyzed. It has been subverted. No one respects the law. They're overworking. They're trying to strain the law officers. They're trying to just just keep punching that weak area. Let's keep working them. Let's keep attacking them. Let's keep making them look like they're all devils, all the police officers. Let's keep doing it, keep doing it, and eventually from city to city, more and more um, more and more cities will uh, eventually defund and disband their police officers, right? That's, that is an end goal for them. They don't want that. They don't want law and order. And they divide communities. They turn people against each other that would not be against each other otherwise. They divide folks. Again, This is intentional. This is part of the worldview because when you're in all these subgroups, we don't see ourselves as we're Chicagoans. We're Americans. We're Christians. Nope, it's the white Christians versus the black Christians. It's the women Christians versus the male Christians, right? And everyone is now divided because that's what critical theory does. It doesn't unite, it divides, it doesn't build, it destroys, and it also destabilizes the economy. All of this is a concerted effort. This is part of the playbook. This is what Marx wanted to happen, the workers to rise up against the ruling class. This is what he always envisioned, and the Frankfurt School slowly but surely had to manufacture that by introducing these ideas and making people believe it. And lastly, we see Christian denominations, famous leaders, and seminaries being infected with critical theory. You're hearing of people who, you know, five, ten years ago, they preached a sound gospel. They preached sound theology. And they're, by their own admission, are saying, I've been awakened to things. I didn't preach the whole gospel before. 
I didn't realize my privilege. I didn't realize my innate racism. I didn't realize how I was complicit in this system that's oppressing my neighbors. And when people start saying that, you need to take note of them. Because they're basically saying, I've changed my gospel. They're literally saying that. And we're like, oh, that is so courageous, brother. I'm so glad you're coming out with a different gospel. Because the gospel that you wrote in these textbooks, that was not a good gospel. It wasn't enough. It didn't go far enough. You had to add things to the gospel, and I'm so glad you did. That is what they're doing, and we are applauding them. We are still going to their conferences, buying their books, sitting in their classes. God help us. You're, you're seeing the, the language of, of whiteness and white privilege and racism and anti-racism. And racism, by the way, in critical theory, is everything. Everything is racist. It's not just a condition of a person's heart. It's, it's not just that I, I hate black people because they're black. That's racist according to scripture. It's partiality, it's hatred, right, that, that a person has. But this is just, if you belong to a certain group that has benefited from white supremacy or, or is part of the cultural hegemony, you are racist automatically. They just lump you in with a whole group. doesn't matter the condition of your heart. You're prejudged. You're part of the problem, and you just have to own it and shut up and listen and get on the right side of things and allow oppressed people to validate you. They'll tell you when you can speak. That is poison. That has no place in the body of Jesus Christ. And so why is this a problem? There are many problems here, but let me uh, narrow it down to three things that I see. Number one, it destroys Christian unity. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It destroys Christian unity. It divides the church. Look at what Paul had said. And, and long ago, by the way, it's important to understand that in the first century church, and you'll see this a lot in Paul's letters and in Acts, that there was... Um, some contention between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, right? And so if critical theory were introduced to the equation, that would only heighten the hostility between them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, because for the longest time, Jews had just hated Gentiles, saw them as pigs, saw them as dogs, saw them almost as subhuman. And, and then on the, on the flip side, the Gentiles were oppressing them. It was the Rome. It, it, was, it was the Greeks. There was all this history, right? And so critical theory would accentuate those things and bring those things up. And that's why today we're talking about slavery. How many of you have ever been a slave? And yet, I, TJ, have you ever been a slave? Okay. Did I ever enslave you? So why should I shine your shoes? to apologize and show penance for something I never did, right? But they, they're, it's, they're redressing grievances. They want, they, want to pay, they want that stuff paid for. See, there's no cross, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness here. 
to do away with those things. We're still paying with the sins of, for the sins of 16 and 19. Or, you know, the, the year, the 1619 Project, when, when, when we came over here and slavery was introduced. Um, still paying for those sins because there's no cross, there's no mercy, there's no redemption. And so this is why Paul has to deal with this. He doesn't deal with it with critical theory. He deals with it in the gospel. The Bible has the answer to racial unity, my friends. And there are professing Christians who say that's not good enough. Look what Paul says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I'll just pause on that, right? Jesus puts to death the hostility, any grievance that the Jews could have against the, the Greeks. Why are we speaking Greek? It's because you enslaved us, right? Because Jews were speaking Greek, right, in that time, Koine Greek. Why are we speaking Greek? Because once upon the time, Alexander the Great came and colonized us. Y'all, y'all hear me? Who are these Roman pigs? You know, we could just accentuate these, these, these hostilities, but Jesus puts them to death on the cross. I don't look at their history. I don't, look, I don't even look at your own personal history, let alone the history of your ancestors. I don't look at you as a group. I look at you as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. He says he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near, both to Jew and Gentile, peace. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become the holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Let me tell you guys, segregation has been happening all over the world in every culture since the beginning of time, okay? And so there was segregation here. Gentiles couldn't go and worship God in the temple. Well, they, there, there was a court of the Gentiles, but they didn't have the same access as the Jews' segregation. But now you hear Christian leaders talk about black spaces and white spaces, and they almost seem to want to resegregate the church because the black people are getting stressed out by the white people. I heard a brother, I'm going to name a name, Jamar Tisby, Tisby, the color of compromise, your woke golden boy who's being recommended by your favorite pastor. After the 2016 election, he says, I'm afraid to worship with my white Christian friends. I'm afraid to go to church with them. 
bringing up that dividing wall, bringing segregation to the body of Christ, God forbid. That's racist. They're so obsessed with race. And Jesus actually teaches us to be colorblind. They say, you can't be colorblind. Say, watch me. Watch me not treat anyone differently on the basis of their skin color. Watch me not walk on eggshells with my brothers and sisters in Christ and how I treat them. Let's look at Colossians 3.19. Uh, not uh, 19, but 9. 3.9. Colossians 3.9. One more text here. Because this, again, is completely against what the Bible teaches. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is neither Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in in all. Let me give you the woke translation. Here there is Gentile and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, for you are all divided by your points of intersectionality. And we have to take uh, these things into account in the church and have cringe-worthy conversations about them in the church and apologize and do penance to one another in the church. God, have mercy on us. And in all of these groups, again, first century, first century church, there's Jew and Gentile, but there's also barbarian and Scythian. Again, people have been enslaving and oppressing one another since the beginning of time. You want to talk colonization? There's no square inch of planet Earth besides, besides uh, Antarctica that hasn't been conquered by somebody and taken away from somebody else. It's true, it's, but we want to have this tunnel vision because we want to destroy this nation. Where in Ephesians it says, he makes out of the two one man. Critical theory wants to take the one man and make it like 50, according to our different groups. Help us, Lord. Number two, it advocates for injustice, partiality, lawlessness, institutional theft and coveting. That's the second issue. The first is that it destroys Christian unity. The second is that it advocates for injustice, partiality, lawlessness, institutional theft, and coveting. I have a lot of texts uh, here that you could write down. Uh, but let's, let's turn to Exodus 22, verse 3. Um, but I'll give you these other ones in advance. We may or may not have a chance to read them. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21. Proverbs 17, verse 15, and 18, verse 17. Okay. And then, um, I don't have the exact address, but somewhere in Exodus 20, there's this familiar phrase, you shall not steal. Y'all know that one? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Now, what I'm saying here is that the social justice movement, as it is called, and the social justice movement in the church, um, th their solutions to, to the problems as they see them is basically partiality. What's that? Is it 15? Is what 15? No, I think it's 3. Exodus 22, 3. Oh, you're talking about... Um, 
you shall not steal. Thank you. Basically, what Christians are going to be advocating for in the socio-political arena are forms of injustice that subvert God's law. Okay, and, and, and here's something that a lot of Christians get wrong because they don't know God's law. You don't know the, the first five books of your Bible. Um, there, are, there are books of case law here. God gave the people of Israel a civil government, an, an order. And, he, and Jesus said that order was summed up in love for God and neighbor. And yet we poo-poo it. Even Christians will make fun of these laws and talk about how ridiculous and impractical and mean they are. Well, the Bible says if you have a rebellious child, you should stone them. And they show their ignorance and disbelief when they say such things. But if you don't know that verse and you don't know what it's about, then any village atheist can clobber you over the head with it. A critical theorist can clob you over the head with that. And so what a lot of what they're doing is the, you know, the Bible has, has justice. The Bible has standards. The Bible can guide us in ways that we, have, we've, we haven't really explored. But instead of going to the treasures of Scripture, we're going to the trash of Karl Marx. Karl Marx, teach me about justice. Teach me about economy. Teach me how to lift people up. Teach me, Karl Marx, instead of, you know, I'd, I'd rather have Moses than Marx. You understand? How many believe God gave Moses a better law? It doesn't immediately comport with our 21st century uh, understanding of the world, but that law was about loving God and neighbor. And it was righteous. And it was just. And so it completely subverts that. When you're calling for redistribution of wealth, uh, reparations. We had a, a, someone who writes your textbooks on Pentecostal theology. Someone who writes your textbooks speak at SUM a couple years ago. And they slipped in reparations at the very end of their message on Acts 2. They slipped it in just a little, little slippy slip there. They slipped in this idea. But what does that call for? It calls for institutionalized coveting and theft. It says that one group of people should be mad and feel entitled to what another group of people has. Therefore, the government should be able to confiscate what that other group of people has and give it to those. That is what that is. That is institutional coveting and theft. That is against God's law. Exodus 22 verse 3 is that, is that the verse? Maybe I had it wrong. Maybe it was 23 verse 2. It talks about going with the crowd. But you could go ahead and find that. Because we do, go, we do go with the crowd. Christians go with the crowd. All these race events. George Floyd. Ahmaud Arbery. We go with the crowd. We, as, a, as in the court of public opinion, play judge, jury, and executioner. We judge their hearts as racist. Right away, right? Those guys who shot Ahmaud Arbery, racist. There's no way to prove that, but they're racist. The cops who pinned down uh, George Floyd, racist. No way to prove it, but they're racist. They have to be because that's the narrative. White supremacy, racism. This is just another example. And so, and so that's why you have scriptures like Proverbs 17, verse 15, that says to justify the, the, the wicked and to condemn the innocent. Both are an abomination to the Lord. You have the woke world justifying Jacob Blake who raped a woman. And that's, he had a warrant for raping a woman and the cops were going after him. So they justify him. They make him a hero. They put his face on a mural. 
and then they condemn it. I still, I still can't get over the words, I'll never have respect for LeBron James unless he repents for, for how he characterized those police who shot him, saying, you know, they were probably having a hard day, and they were probably thinking to themselves, man, the next black kid that gets in my way is going to get it. You can look up his words on that. I'm not far from what he said on that. Condemning. You don't even know these guys. Imagine you're in their shoes and some guy's got a, you know, got a knife and he's doing all these things. And yet we are so quick. And that's why I have you in that, that, that Deuteronomy passage because it talks about due process. Two to three witnesses. And then you cross-examine the witnesses. And if the witness is found to be false, whatever they would have done to the other person would be done to them. So that justice would prevail. And instead of biblical justice, Christians are advocating for mob justice. It's become a little more indefensible recently when things are being burned down and black businesses are being destroyed in communities like the West Side, primarily brown and black people. I used to live not far from there are being destroyed. It's become a little more indefensible to say that they're doing the right thing. But how many ridiculous Christian friends were justifying what they were doing? Using the quotes, using Marxist uh, ideology that this is that this this is the groan of the oppressed. This is the voice of the voiceless when they rise up and steal Nikes and throw a brick for no reason. God have mercy! You have forsook biblical justice, and now you advocate for mob justice. You advocate for partiality, injustice, lawlessness, institutionalized coveting and theft. God have mercy on you. God have mercy on you. The last thing, another gospel. It's another gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. That alone puts you in the heresy camp. That alone means you are to be contended with. That alone means you are to be confronted. That alone means you are to be named, to be identified. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Someone say, that's what he said. He's so mean. That's not very pastoral. It's not very Christ-like. Don't let the tone police keep you from speaking truth and confronting lies, by the way. Amen? But, but this is in the introduction to Paul's letter, right? So he's, he's, he starts off guns blazing. He gets into his little intro, hey, I'm Paul, God called me, what's up? But he gets right into it. He doesn't commend them. He, he doesn't have any, good, any really good thing to say about them. He's like, let's get down to business. How in the world are you buying this nonsense? There are people trying to throw you into confusion. 
And what does that look like to throw you into confusion? Things were so simple. You love Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Salvation by grace through faith. And through that faith, we're all one in the body of Christ. Now people introduce confusion. And what it looks like is when you you nuance things. And it can be good to nuance things because not everything is that black and white, no pun intended. Sometimes there are shades of gray. Sometimes there are a a lot of little details we need to take into account to to be more careful in the things we say. But some teachers in the body of Christ have a way of nuancing things, including sin and heresy. They have a way of making truth seem debatable and lies seem plausible. By their nuancing, by sowing confusion into the body of Christ. Of Christ. And he says, he says this, so it's another gospel. There's only one gospel, and this ain't it. And if you preach this, you're anathema. That means you're cursed forever. That's the worst of the worst fate that anybody could ever have, is to be forever cursed of God. And he says, This is this is what it deserves. And why does he say this? What warrants this strong introduction? Well, in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about this. He says, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. Remember, I said this is in the church. It's not the obvious atheist attacking. It's not the Muslim. It's not somebody out there. It's somebody in here. Infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of Christ, of the gospel, might be preserved for you. And we're getting close to the end of this message, but that's one point of application. Don't give in for a moment. Don't. Do not concede to their lies, to talking points and rhetoric that is not of God, but is of an ungodly man named Karl Marx. Do you understand? And here's something you may hear when you you confront these things. Well, I don't believe, I'm not a Marxist. Marx was an atheist. I'm not saying you're an atheist, but you sound like him. And again, a lot of this is downstream. You have to understand this. It's trickled down. A lot of the people talking about privilege, they don't know about the Frankfurt School, right? But they are saying what the Frankfurt School has taught. So it's come down. And it's the same way in the church. There may be people who say, how can you say these things? Dude, I'm just loving Jesus. I'm just listening to the same guys I've always listened to. How can you say these things? Well, well, dude, let me explain. Let Let me draw the corollary. This is what they taught. This is what you're saying. So somewhere in the middle, a false teacher got to you, Right? Somewhere in the middle, someone who professed Christ got to you and gave you another gospel. Don't give in to them for one moment. Don't give in to the softianity, nice tone police. Don't give in to them for a moment. Don't concede. Don't say, oh, there's room to agree and disagree. Maybe we can have a little bit of your viewpoint, and I can have a little bit of mine. The thing with people who are moderates, whether politically or theologically, is they always veer to the left. Because a, as, as us, we'll say we're theologically conservative, right? And so as theological conservatives and as people who just love truth, 
we're always trying to act like Jesus, be, you know, be, be humble and stuff and listen and be fair-minded, right? And, and sometimes, and I don't want to say not to be fair-minded, but it can work against us if we get too soft and, and we're, not, we're not masculine. And we, don't, when we forget we have to contend for the truth. Because in our fair-mindedness, well, let's give the heretic an audience, Let's let the heretic stay in our fellowship. Let's let the heretic keep preaching from the pulpit. I mean, they have some good points. They have some bad points. A lot of people are that way with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She did some good things too, you know? And, and your, your moderation is, is actually giving way to the left. It, it, and, that's, and that's the trajectory it always takes. Don't give way to them for a moment. These are false brothers secretly slipping in. And by the way... They know they can't influence the world, right? The, the critical theory Christians, the woke Christians are not influencing the world. Some of them think they are. Some of them think that, okay, okay, CNN, okay, New York Times, I know I've been wrong, as you say, on homosexuality and all these other things, and I, I, I can't really do anything about that, but I think I can meet you here on this issue. I think I can say what you need me to say on this issue. And, and, then, and then they get to write their little editorials. They get to appear on these panels on, on secular godless news networks. And what they end up doing is they throw their fellow Christians under the bus every time. They become the token Christian. So they don't actually influence the world. The world uses them. But who do they influence? Christians. They don't lead the world to Christ. They lead the church to hell. Because that's their sphere of influence. They're not teachers to CNN. CNN doesn't respect their title. CNN doesn't respect their worldview. CNN doesn't respect their beliefs. But who does? It's Christians. It's a church. That's who's buying their books. That's who's attending their churches. Do you understand? That's why this is so dangerous. And, and, and let's go on to uh, in the same chapter to verse 11. And this will sort of be our close here. Galatians 2 verse 11. So again, this is more Paul giving... Uh, details to, to what, what caused him to write this letter. What was, what was the um, circumstances? He says, When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was so afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him with his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So Peter even was going along with this. Right? And, and, and here's the thing, guys. Here's where it gets uber practical. Peter knew better. Peter was a respected leader. Peter should have graduated from this lesson when he went to Cornelius' house. But now he's, having, he's not in step with the gospel. He's not in step with what he knows to be true. Right? And that's where a lot of the woke Christians are. Because they're going to confess something, but they don't walk in line with it. 
They're going to have a confession of faith that sounds orthodox. They're going to agree with you on everything. And, and a lot of professors at seminaries, they're going to sign these statements of faith and say, how can you say I'm a heretic? I signed this statement of faith. I believe all these things. Yeah, you say you believe all these things, but you don't walk in line with them. Your actions betray your confession. Peter says, of course I know the Jews and Gentiles are one. Of course I know that we're not really any different from them. Then why aren't you eating with them? Well, because uh, James and, you know, his, his well, it's, it says from James. Um, we don't, we're not sure if James was the villain of the story, but it says some brothers from James came and put pressure on him. And that's, that's how this happens. This is how the cancer uh, remains and how the cancer spreads in churches and institutions because of our politicking, because we put friendship over truth. Are you listening? Because we tolerate people like, dude, James, my boy. These are, these are my guys. I can't, come on, I can't out them like that. I can't call them heretics. I can't put them out of the fellowship. Man, we've been riding for so long. But I'll tell you what, as tight as, let's just take these two brothers, as tight as Lawrence and TJ are, 20 years down the line, if one of you is not walking in step with the gospel, you better rebuke the other if you love them. Amen? You feel me? You can't, you can't just say, man, Lawrence, we've been riding all this time, brother. We've, we've been through it. You know? And, 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 and to the point where you, you, you don't have the courage to confront them. And that, that's, that's our point of application here. We must confront it to its face. As Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Don't be willy-nilly. Don't be passive-aggressive with sin and heresy, destructive heresy that divides the church. You must oppose it to its face. And those who profess it, you must let them know what they're doing and that they're not in line with the gospel. Amen? That's all I got. Let's all stand up. Thank you, Jesus. God, give us courage. I know that what I'm saying here, I probably couldn't say if I was still a faculty. Or I might have a little more aversion to saying that, but I'm free, baby. I'm free because we cannot put friendships over truth. We cannot put politics over truth. And what I mean is not like the election, the 2020 stuff. I mean church politics over truth. Amen. We, we, can't, we can't put niceanity over truth. We must fight for the truth. We must contend. We must agonizingly, with all of our being, resist it. And call it out for what it is. And that goes for critical theory, but it goes for so many things. So many errant teachings that can seem so innocent, can seem so benign. But they can destroy souls, they can destroy churches. Help us, Lord. 
every head bowed and eyes closed, we just pray that you anoint us with boldness and courage. Anoint us with boldness and courage. Hallelujah. Give us courage. Let us fear God and not man.